Hey folks, it's Jeremy, the host of Blamo. Thanks so much for listening. This is a preview of one of our exclusive shows on Patreon. These are member-supported shows, meaning they only happen because of our incredible members and community. So check out a preview of the episode, and if you like it, consider joining us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Blamo, where we have tons of exclusive Blamo episodes, shows, our amazing Slack group, and we're adding new things for members all the time. If not, no worries, we still love you, and we literally have hundreds of episodes of Blamo all free for you to dive into. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Diet Work Group Podcast. My name is Derek Guy, and my co-host is Peter Zotolo. So this episode was kind of emotional. I recently wrote a story for The Nation about America's hidden sweatshops, and I was able to interview an L.A. garment worker who told me about how she gets paid as little as $50 a day to work 12-hour shifts. Her story really puts a crack in the idea of what it means to manufacture clothes in the United States. I think when most of us see a Made in USA label, we assume that the workers were treated well, or at least according to our country's labor laws. In fact, many workers are being paid well under the minimum wage and work in pretty terrible conditions. Peter and I talk about how this is possible and how a new federal bill called the Fabric Act can help empower workers. We also talk about whether consumers can do anything to make better shopping choices. Let's dive in. Hey, Derek. How you doing? Good. How about you? I'm doing good. Just got back from a wonderful little getaway up in Northern California. Nice. What were you doing in Northern California? I wanted to go to the Avenue of the Giants, which is one of the few places in California that has a stretch of redwood trees, a road going through a stretch of redwood trees, about 20, 30 miles long. Old growth, new growth. It seems like you're in another world. It seems like you're in the scene in Return of the Jedi where the Ewoks <laughs> are living in amongst the trees. It's amazing. These trees are so high and you don't realize how high they are and how big they are until you stand right in front of them. Or if someone you know is standing right in front of them and you take a picture and you see the scale difference between the two, it's just dwarfing. It makes you feel very small. And for me, it was a wonderful reset. Nice. You brought your shearling, right? I did. I wanted to test it to see just how warm it kept me. And it kept me ridiculously warm, except when I was actually on the motorcycle. So I'm going 60, 70 miles an hour with this shirling. And it kept me warm for most of the time until the sun went away. And then it dropped into the 30s. So mind you, I'm hurtling through the air at this speed and my body is warm. So I really can't fault the shirling. My legs were cold. (laughs) My legs felt like two icicles that were about to fall off and break if I didn't move them around from time to time. But the Sherling coat itself was so nice. It's the double RL. It's the double RL. I do not recommend getting it unless you can sell a kidney. Yeah, I saw the photos on Instagram. You look like a gunslinger. <laughs> you looked like you, you looked like you're out there looking for oil fields or something like a Right. Yeah. <laughs> like uh there will be blood. Yeah. My boy. <laughs> It is great. It is really warm. It looks great worn open or closed. It is one of a few Sherlings that I know that according to the sales associate, so I don't know how true this is, but according to the sales associate in Paris, where I got it. In Paris. In Paris. Oh, what a fancy. Right. Fancy where did you get that I got it in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> As one does. Um, 
I tried to get it here and it had sold out. Of course, an American <laughs> would just sell yeah. out of all of them as soon as they were available. Uh, that's where I got it. And the sales associate said, this particular shirling is covered with buffalo leather, as opposed to just being the soft side of the skin. Not that it makes it any more or less valuable. It certainly took a long time, that much longer than it would have been if you were to just use the skin of the shirling. Um, it's great. It's so nice. I do recommend if you're looking for anything double RL to size up, especially when it comes to shirling or just shirlings in general. Yeah. They look better if they're a little bit oversized. If you plan on wearing anything underneath other than a t-shirt, yeah. you run the risk of looking like the Michelin Man <laughs> because you want to wear something bulky underneath it. But shirling, unless it's cut large is going to be constricting. I did wear, and I highly recommend this brand, I did wear a cashmere sweater from Banner, which you can get from Mohawk. What's the name of the Mohawk store? General Store. Thank you. That Mohawk store is General amazing. Store. It is amazing. They get very random things. They get Bodhi. They get Japanese brands. They have their own brand, which is called Smock. Yeah. Which is, for the price, really well designed. They get Dries. They get Double RL. They get Mon Italy. They get really cool things. I love stores that feel like they purchase things that they just liked. Yeah. With very little consideration for the market. It's just stuff that they personally enjoy and they're presenting to you. And if you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. To me, that's like such a it's such a cool way to approach a store, assuming you can get away with it. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, that This particular sweater is great. It's a brushed cashmere. So it looks like a shaggy dog sweater, but way softer. But it feels like the weight to warmth ratio is amazing. It's as light or lighter than a Shetland sweater, but crazy warm and soft. So if it's still there, I highly recommend checking it out. It's not cheap. It's probably close to, I want to say, four or $500. Ooh. But it's great. Maybe Your either. significant other will be reaching for it whenever they get the chance. Nice. What about you? What have you been up to? Uh, well, I have a funny story. Um, okay. Someone from the White House reached out to me and invited me to the White House. Um, wow. They invited me to the holiday party. Um, I uh, declined. Um, you declined, declined an invitation it, from the it White happened, House? It happened, it happened, first off, it, it's, it, the party was today. Uh, <laughs> and I told them I have to record a podcast with my friend Peter. Oh. Um, so, Why yeah, I thought that was surprising that somebody from the White House reached out and they said, if, you know, we're, they said, uh, we like your Twitter account. Um, if you ever want to get a tour of the White House, let us know. And I replied and I said, oh, that's very nice. And then a few days later, they said, well, if you're interested, we're um, hosting a holiday reception with the president and Joe Biden and you're invited to come. And I thought that was strange. <laughs> Very surprising. So they for... sent you one invitation, which you declined, and yeah. they followed up with another invitation. Yeah, I think that is probably the highlight of my the height of my career as a menswear blogger <laughs> to have gotten an invitation to the White House. That's surprising. But this is just the beginning of your career. <laughs> yeah, who knows? I'm sure what awaits you in 2024. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I mean, that that was this was after that article about um, the Fabric Act, which is a bill that has just relatively recently been introduced to Congress, um, and it builds on SB sixty two, which is uh, was a California Senate bill that passed, I think, two years ago, and it addresses the piecework system 
in the garment industry. What exactly is the piecework system? So um, I think when you see a made in the U.S. made in USA tag, you assume like fairly good labor conditions. Um, I think at least many of us, um, you think of all the kind of what are essentially promo videos of brands showing their factory and all these workers being treated well and how much they love their job and the craftsmanship, blah, 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 that really populated, especially the menswear space in the early to mid 2000s, where you could essentially create a whole kind of like blogging career just by visiting factories. That was like it. But really what you're doing that. is you're doing promo for brands. You're just doing free PR. And um, that's the image that I have when I think of a made in USA tag. But the reality is, um, that many people that work in the garment industry get paid not per hour, um, but by each operation that they execute. Each piece. Each operation. Oh, wow. Not even, not not even, even a piece. Not even the piece, but each operation that they execute. So I wrote an, an article for The Nation about the Fabric Act, which is a federal bill currently going to, that's currently in Congress that's trying to limit the piecework system. And I interviewed a garment, work, garment worker in Los Angeles. She gets paid three cents to sew a zipper or sleeve, five cents to sew a collar, and then seven cents to prepare the top part of a skirt before she passes the skirt on to the next person in line. For sewing an entire dress, she gets paid 15 cents. Wow. So um, the UCLA, in 2016, the UCLA Labor Center did a study um, and found that the median uh, piece rate worker takes home $5.15 per hour. Which is far below... California's minimum wage. I mean, that's like, that's less wage, than half. Yeah. Um, so this is essentially a way for companies to get around the minimum wage laws. To some degree, you can think of it like, um, you know, like I get paid per article and I can spend, you know, I don't, I don't keep track of my hours, but you know, I can spend a small amount of time on that article. I can spend a lot of time on that article, but I don't get paid per hour. I get just paid for the article. Right. This is the same true for many garment workers, except that the situation is set up so that many are like barely scraping by. When I interviewed um, this garment worker, uh, it got I, I got kind of emotional at, at parts. It was honestly a difficult interview. Um, you know, I asked her about her life and her job, and she gets up every day at 5 a.m. She boards a bus at 6 a.m., and she takes it uh, for a one-hour ride down to the L.A. Fashion District, which is like an industrial part of the downtown area. And um, she starts work at 7 a.m., gets off at 7 p.m., and then takes the bus back home and is back home at her front step around like 8 p.m. And then she prepares dinner and goes to sleep, wakes up the next day. For the entire that whole day... For all of her labor for 12 hours, she says she gets paid an average of $50 per day. Wow. How do you survive in LA on $50 a day? That's what I asked. So I asked her, what's the breakdown of your expenses? So $50 a day. Uh, she So for she normally works six days a week. That's $300 a week. But sometimes she says she goes in for Sunday. So it's seven seven day work week like 12 hours a day. She says $350 a week. Saturday, so, Sunday, no time and a half, no double time. It's the no. same as it was. It's, it's piecework. Wow. So it's, yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no overtime. She said she does take uh, a lunch break for 30 minutes, but she tries to not take too long because you're not paid to eat. You're paid to execute each operation. So if you want to take a two-hour lunch break, you can, but 
that's just less. That'll lead into your profits. Yeah, that's just fewer operations that you're executing. So I said, what what is what are your expenses? And she said, um, this is the part that uh, made me feel uh, really bothered me. Um, she said she lives in a two bedroom apartment with six other people. Um, two people squeeze into each of the bedrooms. Two people live in the living room, and she sleeps in the corner of the kitchen. Uh, for that, she pays four hundred dollars a month, and then she pays three hundred dollars a month in food. Um, and then you know she has transportation costs and all that. So she says theoretically, at, she gave me a whole breakdown, and um, you know, so it's like four hundred dollars uh, a month for rent, three hundred dollars for food. Uh, she listed some other expenses that were like three hundred dollars. And she says, like, theoretically, it should be like $200 left for savings, but invariably, it never really ends up being that much because like some other stuff comes up or whatever. And I was just thinking like three, $300 for food for a month is honestly not a lot of money. Um, and yeah, it just bothered me. It bothered me to think that somebody, I strongly believe that if you work, and this is not the case, I mean, this is not just talking garment workers, but in my opinion, if you work 40 hours a week in America, you should have enough money to have your own studio space. Like you should live in a studio. Um, that doesn't mean that it has to be like the most glamorous studio, but you should be able to afford a home, like not mortgage, but live somewhere. And it's crazy to me that this woman uh, who learned how to sew in Oaxaca from her grandma, traveled to the U.S., now works 12 hours days, often seven days a week, is living with six people in a two-bedroom apartment and she sleeps in the kitchen? Like, I was just flabbergasted. And I'm sure her situation is not unique. That's the other thing. The U.S. Department of Labor did a study also in 2016 where they did a random sample of 77 factories in Los Angeles and found something like 85% of them were committing like labor abuse, had, had labor violations, and that an estimated, I think the number was 1.3 million in back wages was owed in that year to a few hundred workers spread across those factories. So the the idea, the, the back wages, this in the, in the kind of like labor uh, terminology, this is what they call wage theft or stolen wages is calculated as the amount that you should have earned based on minimum wage laws and the amount that you're paid based on some other kind of loophole, which is often this piecework system. So let's say if you're, if you get paid in, in California, if you work 12 hours a day, you're supposed to earn somewhere around like $202. But let's say you only take home, let's say $52. Well, they would then say for that day, you have $150 worth of stolen wages because the person should have followed minimum wage requirements, but they didn't. And now they stole $150 from you. That's what they call like back wages owed. So in California, uh, two years ago, they passed, uh, the California Senate passed SB 62, which was to eliminate the piecework system. And this meant that you could not pay workers less than a minimum wage. You could still have the piecework system. So again, as an example, if a worker works um, 12 hours and under California's minimum wage, let's say you're supposed to pay them $202, you have to pay them at least that. And if you want to put the piecework system in place, you can say you can earn a bonus if you meet productivity goals. So if you, I don't know, let's say, you know, if you make, I'm just making up a number, but let's say like 100 or 200 dresses um, and our, our target was 75, then you get a bonus for the piecework. Because the, the garment industry 
many factories say, well, the piecework system is in place because we need to keep productivity up. You know, like what if a worker just like takes like a whole day to sew one dress like that? And we have to sell that dress for a certain amount. Like, you know, there there is a uh, there's just a profit margin that we have to keep. So they're saying the piece system is in way to incentivize productivity. Yes. But they can easily pay the minimum wage and still give them bonuses as a way to incentivize productivity. That's what the California State Senate said. They said you can still keep productivity aims by having piecework, but you have to pay at least the minimum wage. Factories also protested and said, we need a whole new kind of like accounting system to institute this because currently we have our system of paying workers. And if you force this on us, we then have to institute this whole new system to count people's hours and all that. And the state Senate was like, well, that's your problem. Like you got to figure it out. Cause that's how like a lot of businesses work, right? Like yeah. if you work at McDonald's, like they've figured it out. The other <laughs> protest was that um, if you force this on factories, many factories will close because many of these factories are producing for fast fashion brands. So when I spoke to uh, Bilma, who's the uh, garment worker that interviewed, she was making clothes for Fashion Nova, which was the biggest, was the name that I recognize. Um, but she also made for Lulu's and Lucy in the Sky, which are both, uh, all three are fast fashion brands. When you say fast fashion, uh, how would you qualify a company as being fast fashion? So this is a, this is a, complicated. No, it doesn't have to be complicated, but I think many people take fast fashion as cheap clothing. And that's not how I define fast fashion. Um, like, I don't think that Hanes is fast fashion. I think Shein is fast fashion. And the difference is, is the 1980s, uh, the U.S. garment industry had trouble competing with overseas um, businesses. And they needed to figure out a way to be more competitive. So they set up a way so that they would have low inventory and quick restocking. So if you have shirts in blue, red, and green, and you find out that blue is selling really well that season, well, as soon as the inventory gets down to a certain amount, you can quickly order from your factories and they'll ship them to you. And then you have them stocked again in your stores. And over time, the system has basically evolved to be a system where Companies have such strong control over the factories, the designs, the design kind of process, um, the way they ship and manufacture goods that I can't remember the exact number. But Zara and H&M were stocking like they had tons of drops like a year. And now Shein has like like thousands of drops per year. I mean, it's just like constantly new trendy products. And so the whole system is to look at what is happening on runways, what's moving quickly, not only on your shelf, but also across the market, and just design things as quickly as possible to produce trendy items. So if you hear, for example, that... Um, Want to hear the rest? Listen to the full episode and many more other exclusive episodes over on our Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash Blamo to sign up and join the Blam fam. You also get access to our exclusive members only Slack group where we chat about this and a ton of other things. So head over to patreon.com forward slash blamo and we'll see you there.